0: morning. It's good to see all of you here. We're glad to have you come and join us for worship here this morning. And I'd invite you, if you brought them with you, to take out your Bibles. I hope that you've got them with you and you would take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. And uh, we're going to finish up chapter one this morning. And if you're looking for it, it's right between those two Z prophets, Zephaniah and Zechariah. If you find them, you're close. And uh, and we, uh, as you know, were with us last week. We began a new series through The book of Haggai, entitled Major Messages from a Minor Prophet. And this morning, I want us to continue that. If you were with us last week, I just want to, maybe if you weren't, just reset the stage for you. In verses 1 through 11, we looked at the very first message that the Lord gave to the children of Israel that were there, uh, the people of the Jews who were in Jerusalem, who had been released from their Babylonian captivity and had come back to the city of Jerusalem there after Nearly 50 years of captivity, and uh, you'll recall that that first message that God sent through the prophet Haggai to these people was simply a message that said, "This people says the Lord, say this: the time has not come; the time that the Lord's house should be built." And what we recognize is that for 18 years, the temple there in Jerusalem had lain in ruins. And the excuse that was continually said for why it had not been rebuilt was, they just said, well, the time has not come. The time has not come for us to rebuild it. Yet in his rebuke of them, the Lord chided these Jews, and he exposed the fact that it had evidently been time for them to go and build their own houses, not just any kind of houses, but the Bible says they were paneled houses, which indicates for us that they were lavish houses. They were expensive, nice houses. And in doing so, and in exposing that, the Lord revealed the real problem behind the reason why the temple had not been rebuilt. It was because the Jews were more concerned about their own priorities. They were more concerned about Building their own homes. They were more concerned about chasing their own dreams. They were more concerned about achieving their own goals than they were about rebuilding the temple of God, which was the representation and was the place where God would come and dwell among his people. So the Lord sends Haggai the prophet to tell all the people to consider their ways. In fact, he he tells them to consider that though they planted, they, they didn't reap much. Though they ate and they drank, they were always still hungry. They were always still thirsty. Though they, they work to, to earn money, they only watch that money disappear as if they had holes in their pockets, holes in their money bags, just constantly going away. And God goes on to tell them that all of that happened, that he, he blew away all of their resources and even sent a drought upon them, as he tells them in verse 9, because my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. So the Lord tells them again, consider your ways. In other words, take thought to yourself. Repent of your lack of action. And then he tells them in verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring the wood, build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. Consequently, what we learned last week as we examined those first 11 verses was that the, when the word of God comes to us and brings conviction to us about areas of our lives in which we have been disobedient by either making excuses or through allowing other priorities and other things to become more important to us than the things that God says ought to be important to us. When anything becomes dominant in our lives other than allowing the glory of God to hold first place in our lives, then there really is only one proper response. From the people of God. And that is, we must repent and we must obey. That was the first major message that we learned from this minor prophet Haggai. And today what I want us to do is look at verses 12 through 15. And and really they go right together with that first message. So this is really part two. But in part two, what we actually see is we see the response of the people to that first message. And not only do we see the response of the people, we see and get to hear the second message. God sends through Haggai to his people. So with that as an introduction, let's pick up there in verse 12. We are necessarily going to be seeing the response to the first message, and we're going to hear the second message from God. And what we read is this. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up, the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the beauty of it. Thank you for allowing us to be here this morning to be able to open your word, to read it, to study it. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit might be given freedom in our lives to bring conviction into our lives. Help us to be able to understand the truth of this passage and then to apply that truth to our lives. We pray this would happen not only for our good, but ultimately for your glory. This is our prayer. We pray it in Christ's name. So as I mentioned last week, in the first 11 verses, really what we see, the main message there, and this is what I titled my sermon last week, was simply that if you snooze, you lose. The people of Israel had been snoozing. They'd been hitting the snooze button on the alarm clock that God had been sending to them again and again and again. And for 18 years, they kept hitting the snooze button. But then God sends Haggai, the prophet, with his message. And as we've just read, it accomplished its desired goal. Verse 12, we read that everyone was awakened from their slumber. The governor Zerubbabel, the high priest Joshua, with all the remnant of the people, verse 12 says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. Then I hope you notice down in verses 14 and 15, we read that, that after 18 years of, of spiritual lethargy and laziness, and selfishness, 18 years worth was reversed in the matter of 23 days. The word of the Lord had come to the people on the first day of the sixth month of the second year of the rule of King Darius, but by the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of the rule of King Darius, we read that they came to work on the house of the Lord of, their, the Lord of hosts, their God. That's... I don't know how you feel. That's truly an amazing turn of events that you read about. And and what it does, just on the front end, if you don't take anything else from what I say today, take this. There's hope in that. There's hope in the fact that you and I are not consigned to live in the trap of disobedience all of our lives. What we read here is a testimony to us that the Word of God comes and it comes to wake us up. It comes to to stir our hearts. The Word of God comes to change us. And that's good news. That's good news for every one of us in this room this morning. But as I read that good news, I couldn't help but wonder, I wonder what the prophet Jeremiah would have thought had he been there and seen what took place. You see, Jeremiah was a prophet just like Haggai, sent to the same people, the same Jews who lived in the land of Judah, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, who had prophesied to this remnant that Haggai prophesied to. Jeremiah preached to their grandparents and their great-grandparents and their great-great-grandparents in the same city 100 years before. And I couldn't help but wonder... I wonder how Jeremiah would have understood this change of heart. You see, Jeremiah evaluated his ministry this way. You can read this for yourself in Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord there. Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem saying, From the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the 23rd year in which the word of the Lord has come to me. And I've spoken to you, rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, repent now every one of his evil way and his evil doings and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them, to worship them. And do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Do you see the difference? It's a striking difference. Jeremiah comes and he preaches a message of repentance and obedience For years and years and years and the people steadily ignore him and continue on in their disobedience. But about a hundred years later, Haggai, he comes on the scene and he delivers one message and the people immediately accept the Lord's rebuke. They repent of their ways and they obey. What's the difference? Well, was it the message? No, the message was the same. You go back and read Jeremiah, you'll find that, that He too preached a message of repentance and obedience. So then if it wasn't the message, was it the messenger? Was was Haggai in some way more talented or more gifted than Jeremiah? No, we're we're not given any information about Haggai that would give us any indication that there was anything extraordinary about him that would be the reason for his success. So if it wasn't the message and it wasn't the messenger, then what's the difference between these two scenarios? If we cannot attribute... this this response to either the message or the messenger, then what do we attribute it to? Well, I would point you to the last phrase of verse 12, which tells us that the people feared the presence of the Lord. Literally, that verse in Hebrew actually literally translated is they feared from the face of the Lord. How do we understand that? Well, to be sure, there are different types of fear that all of us face. Snakes are at the top of my list. I don't like them. I hate them. For other people, like my, one of my daughters, who will remain, namely Maggie, she hates spiders. Oh, she hates them. You know, there are things that elicit fear within us. We, we are fearful sometimes when, the, when we hear the, do- the phone ring and we know it's the doctor calling. There's different things that can bring fear into our lives, cause us to want to run away. That type of fear generally means that you're afraid, you're scared of something that you want to get away from. But what I want you to know is there's another type of fear. It's a proper fear. It's, a, it's really a holy reverence that the Bible speaks about. You, you hear about it over and over again, particularly in the Old Testament. Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom. And instruction. Job 28, 28, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 111 verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. And then Solomon, when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he went through and described all of these things and and, and went through everything, and he gets down to the very last chapter and almost the last verse, and he summarizes the book of Ecclesiastes this way. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. See, these verses describe a fear that is connected to knowledge, a fear that's connected to wisdom, a fear that is connected to instruction, and it's the type of fear that's always linked to obedience to God's commands. So this type of fear is not something that we are to be, that describes something that we are scared and afraid of and want to get away from. In fact, the scriptures go on to tell us just the opposite. In Proverbs chapter 14, verses 26 and 27, we read this, in the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence and his children have a place of refuge. In other words, the fear of the Lord is a place that we go to. It's a a place where we can find peace. In fact, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. What we learn is that This type of fear, again, is not something we run away from and hide from. Instead, it is something to be embraced. This type of fear brings about safety and security. In other words, proper fear is a reverence and a respect for God that draws us to him rather than repelling us away from him. And therefore, what this passage reveals to us is that the difference between the people's reception to the message of God in Jeremiah's time, as opposed to Haggai's time, was really comes down to the to the issue of fear and reverence for God. That leads me to the first point that I want you to see today. The first point on your outline is just this obedience results from a proper fear and a holy reverence for God. Here's, here's the reality of the fact. When the word of God is preached, the Spirit of God moves in the hearts. Of people, The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than two any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You know what that verse tells us? It tells us that when the word of God is... It's properly preached. When it is properly proclaimed, if it does not produce within you a desire to obey it and to live in accordance with what it teaches, the only reason that that can be true is because you do not have a proper fear and a holy reverence for the God who authored that word. In fact, I could state my point this way. I could say it, that without proper fear... You and I will never properly obey. The best way I can describe that to you is a personal example. I've shared it with many of you before. 25 years ago, right now, I was running from the Lord just as hard as I could. Um, The Lord had called me into his ministry to be one who would proclaim his gospel. That's not what I wanted, I had other priorities. I had other things that I wanted to do with my life. But much like what we read back in verses 6 through 11, God had his way of being able to hem me in. He had his way of, 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 of showing me that everything that I was chasing was only leading me to dead ends. And he let me come to the dead end of every one of those paths. And I ended up, after having chased after them, more miserable and unhappier than I had ever been before. Things came to a head on Saturday night, April the 2nd, 1994. That was the, that was the Saturday night before Easter Sunday morning, 1994. I remember lying in my bed and I was thinking about how at 24 years, of old, 24 years of age, I had really just made a mess out of everything in my life. My relationships, everything that I was going for was just all in a state of disarray. I did just what God commands in this passage to be done, though though I did not know that's what I was doing. I considered my ways. I considered how God had brought me to one dead end after another. And then in as clear of a voice as I have ever heard, though it was not audible, let me tell you that up front, it was not an audible voice, but there is no doubt it was crystal clear that the word of the Lord came to me and spoke to me and said, buddy, you ain't seen bad yet but it's coming. I'm not claiming that God uses bad grammar. I am claiming that he can get your attention. And he got mine. Those words scared me. They terrified me. In effect, the message was simply this. You only thought what you've gone through thus far in your life has been bad but you have not seen what bad actually is yet. I stand before you this morning as one who knows what it is like to live a life of disobedience. I know what it is like to run away from God and to ignore his commands and his call upon my life. I also know what it is like to experience the fear and the awe of God when He reveals to you that He not only controls your future, but that He will go to whatever lengths are necessary to bring about your repentance and your obedience. The next day, as I said, was Easter. I went. I went to church. I mean, I was shocked. I went to church that day. I went to church that night. Later that evening, it was in the den of my mother and my father's house that I fell on my knees. All alone, just me and the Lord, and I committed my life to following Christ completely, and I surrendered to the gospel ministry. What I want you to know was that it was a holy reverence and a proper fear of God that rather than pushing me away from him was what actually drew me into him and actually woke me up and drew me to the fact that he had a life in store for me far better than anything I had ever imagined or thought before. And it's why I stand before you this morning. It is a direct result of that event that I am here and that I am your pastor this morning. What I want you to know is that the first point we come to understand from this text is that obedience results from a proper fear and a holy reverence for God. But that's only the first part of this passage. Thus far, all we've dealt with is the response of the people. I want us to hear the second message of the Lord because look down in verse 13. The message comes again through the prophet Haggai. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. Now, you'll immediately notice that this was a much shorter message than the first one. Some of you were hoping that this message would be much shorter than the first one that you heard last week. Sorry. But notice that although this second message is shorter, it is no less impactful. It's no less important. He says, I am with you, says the Lord. Now, first of all, I must point out to you that the natural order and the flow of this text... You see, the promise of God's presence that we read about here in verse 13 follows the repentant obedience of hearts that in verse 12 are convicted by the word of God and have a holy reverential fear for God. You see, prior to verse 12, in the first 11 verses, we read that the Lord had been grieved. He had been provoked with this people. But the moment that they repent, the moment that they embark upon a life of obedience, on that very day, God assures them of his presence. And that brings me to the second point that I want you to see. The second point simply is, obedience results in the promised presence of God. Obedience results in the promised presence of God. Now, now we need to question what this promised presence of God implies. Based upon this passage, we need to, figure out what is, what is it that God's presence with his people, how did they realize it? How did they come to understand it? How did it impact the people? Well, we don't have to wait long. Verse 14 gives us an immediate impact. You'll see there it says, So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Jerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadok, the king, of, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Richard Taylor, he has written this. He says that that verb stirred up makes it clear that the enthusiasm that the Jews experienced for the, for the rebuilding project, it was not merely the result of, of some hype that had been artificially induced upon them, whether by themselves or some outside source. It, it was actually the Lord who had done it. It was the Lord who stirred them up. He was the one who woke them up. He was the one who aroused them from their slumber. So So, when we contemplate the lord 's presence, we have to first of all recognize and acknowledge the first subpoint there, subpoint a is that God motivates he motivates that 's what he does with his presence the, the The idea literally is is when he stirs something up it 's like someone who has a stick and there 's a campfire, and the the campfire has burned down, and they go with that stick and they push around on those logs in order to stir them up so that the, the flames catch again and the embers get hot again and the, and the logs catch fire again. That's what that verb means. That's what God does. He comes to us and He, he pokes us. He, he stirs around in the, the darkness of our hearts so that, that the embers of His Holy Spirit can catch flame. He motivates us. That's the first way we understand his presence, but there's another. The next subpoint there is, is it tells us that he encourages us. He encourages us. Consider the circumstances that these Jews found themselves in, 520 BC. These Jews were trying to rebuild a nation, they were trying to rebuild a city that had been left completely decimated 66 years prior. Del Ralph Davis in a sermon that he preached Says this, he describes the colors surrounding the city of Jerusalem as being the drab hues of brown and gray. See, although these Jews were no longer captives of a hostile nation, it was still a very difficult life that they had embraced by going back to the land of their forefathers. And to make matters worse, as we read in the first 11 chapters, excuse me, the first 11 verses. There had been a drought. Food was scarce. Money was tight. Resources were limited. We learned from the book of Ezra that, that Judah's neighbors opposed them and, and opposed the rebuilding of the temple. To quote Davis once more, these, these Jews lived in cramped and despairing times. But the word of the Lord came to the people through the prophet Haggai and said, I am with you. I am with you. What that means is that all of the opposition, all of the distraction, all of the trouble, all of the things that had caused these Jews to abandon the rebuild process 18 years earlier, well, all of it was still there. I and mean, in that sense, nothing had changed. But in another sense, everything had changed because now they had the promised presence of God to be with them. They had the encouragement of the Lord Himself that He would be with them every step of the way, guiding them, working out His good and and His glory through their lives as they obediently went about rebuilding the temple. The people didn't have to worry that they were left all alone to accomplish that monumental task by themselves. No, God promised to be with them. He does the same thing for you and for me. He calls us to a life of obedience. He calls us to a life of following him as he leads us. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Sometimes, yea, we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But listen, we do not have to fear any evil. Why? Because he is with us. His rod and his staff comfort us. He gives us his presence to walk through the difficult times. I remember crying. And I remember arguing with God. God, there's no way I can ever be a preacher. If these people knew what all I'd done, they'd never listen to me. There's a thousand people you could call to proclaim the gospel who would be much better than I am. Why would you use me? Why? I don't want it. God said, I have called you and I will not leave you and I will not forsake you and if you will follow me in obedience I will walk with you every step of the way and I remember that Easter Sunday night being back at church and the preacher was up there preaching and he didn't know he was preaching directly to me I was sitting right back on the very back row right back there It's my favorite spot still sit there if I could. He preached from 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9 my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Mm. That friends is the wonderful blessing of the encouragement of the presence of God when we When we repent of our disobedience and then embark upon a life of obedience with him, he says, I will be with you. That is the encouragement that this passage brings to us. But it leads me to the third one. The third sub point there is this. He forgives us. His presence with us promises that He forgives us. I want you to think back just a moment to the very first message that Haggai delivered. When he first got there, he gave the word of God to the people and God says, this people. You remember what we decided about that? That was interesting. He doesn't call them my children. He doesn't call them my people. He says, this people. And that alerts us to the fact that there was a problem in the relationship between the Jews and their God. There had been something that had separated them and what we know is that the separation occurred because of their disobedience and their lack of repentance. But now, now by the time that we get to verse 13, we actually recognize that they have repented and they have obeyed. The alarm was sounded and they have been awakened and they have been stirred. And now they truly feared the Lord and they set their hearts to obey him and the wonderful thing, is that God immediately follows their obedience with the promise of his presence saying, I am with you, says the Lord. I want you to consider all that is implied in that statement. As Stephen Miller writes, when when Judah's people repented, God was quick to express the fact that his fellowship and blessing would now return to them. God loves his people and is always willing to forgive. With forgiveness comes all the blessing of God upon our lives. In his commentary on this passage, John Gill says that Haggai's first message from the Lord convinced the Jews of their sin. It terrified them with the judgments of God that had come upon them, and it caused them to fear that worse still would come upon them if they did not repent and obey. But in his second message from the Lord, Haggai revived the spirits of God's people and comforted them by delivering the message of God's promised presence. Gill writes that this fresh message from God was accompanied by a promise of comfort and encouragement to pardon their sins, to remove his rod from them, to assist them in the work of the building of the temple, to protect them from their enemies, and to strengthen them to go on with the work that they had until they had finished it. Gil says this, it was a short promise, but a very full. It It was saying much and very little, and it was enough to remove all their fears and to scatter all their doubts and to bear them up through all discouragements, Here's the beauty of this passage. You see, in, in, in promising his presence to these once disobedient Jews who had now repented and had begun to obey his command, the Lord God brings about the restoration of the relationship with him. They are no longer this people but rather they are his children with whom he shares intimacy and fellowship. And that, brothers and sisters, is what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Proper fear of the God who promises his presence is what breaks the trap of a life of disobedience, bringing about forgiveness and restoration. Here's the question that I want to close with this morning that I want you to ask yourself. What or whom do you fear? What or who causes you to stop and consider your ways? You see, it's my gut level belief that who or what you fear most will ultimately determine who or what you worship because it will determine who or what you pursue. It will determine where you go. It will decide what your priorities are. Whom or what do you fear? Jesus said something about fear in the New Testament. Something that if we truly think about it, it will reorient our thinking. He said in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do you realize that what Jesus tells us to do there in Matthew chapter 10 is precisely what these ancient Jews had done more than 500 years earlier? They had properly feared the one who was able to destroy both Soul and body in hell. They had come to recognize that their eternal security rested in the hands of the one who had maneuvered and controlled their circumstances and situations. And not only that, but he was the one who would also control their future and who promised to be with them every step of the way. That's what allowed them to move forward in obedience. That's what allowed them to, to move forward without worry and without dread. As David writes in Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And of course, let's not forget the words also of Jesus who says in this world you will have trouble. But then in John 14 it says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house, or are many mansions, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Friend, do you see that a proper fear in our Savior dispels all other fears and it results in the promise of his eternal presence with us? What or whom do you fear? On the authority of God's word, I beg you to place your fear and holy reverence in the God of the scriptures who has sent his one and only begotten son to die in your place so that you might be saved and delivered from the penalty and from the power of sin in your life. I appeal to you today to believe in Christ and to trust in him, to turn from your disobedience and stop running from him but instead turn to him, believe upon him, claim his promises to you, and allow him to bless you as he promises that he will. To do so is to invite the divine blessing of God upon your life, the blessings of forgiveness and restoration. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that this truly is a major message from this minor prophet. And it is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.